Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive here right now, serving you, sitting at your feet. We thank you for this privilege and opportunity that a lot of believers don't get in a lot of countries in this world. We thank you for the freedom we have, both logistically and also in Christ. Father, we pray for those in our congregation right now that are sick and struggling. Uh, we pray for Kathy and her upcoming surgery as well. Your will be done, Father. We ask that you strengthen those that are struggling. Give them more faith, more hope, and more love because that's what really sustains us through any life situation. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that you guide the speaker by your spirit, and help us understand your special message for us tonight. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. All right, once again, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make, part 15. Uh, let's begin this way tonight on the board. And this kind of came as a summary of the beginning of Sunday's lesson, at least in my soul. An inner desire for the truth, at least to some degree, is an indication one belongs to the Lord. There's a hearing and a following that goes on in the life of a believer, as in John 10, 27. Hopefully that verse also looks familiar to you. We'll go there in a minute. But again, an inner desire for truth, at least to some degree, is an indication one belongs to the Lord. There's a hearing and a following that goes on in the life of a believer. Just like if you no longer desire to live in the sin you used to live in, uh, you've turned away from that life you used to live. That's a good sign that your heart's been changed. Yet, if one goes to church only to cover their back and check a box with no motivation to learn about the Lord and His plan for them, well, to borrow from pastor's language, they might have a big problem. If there's no desire to seek Him. And we're not talking about moments of weakness uh, or the flesh sidetracking us sometimes. If there's no desire or motivation in the heart to seek Him, then one's heart might not have been changed in the first place. And this is akin to the evidence the Lord spoke about in His true believers, as in John chapter 10. So turn to John 10, 22. Gospel of John, 10.22. Again on the board, an inner desire for truth, at least to some degree, is an indication one belongs to the Lord. There's a hearing and a following that goes on in the life of a believer. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Have you ever had people do that? They come up to you and they kind of already know what you believe, but they come up to you and say, Just tell, tell us the truth. Tell me what you believe. And then you know if you tell them what you believe, you know exactly what they're going to say. You know, you're a fool. Or you, you just know they're looking for almost an excuse to reject you. So anyways, the, these people knew, knew the truth. They knew who Jesus was, and they kept asking him, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. In verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Our Lord said that those who are truly his sheep will hear his voice and follow him. So again, to our opening point, if this is totally absent from someone's heart and life, they may not be a sheep to begin with. They may need to examine their heart. So this happens in churches, uh, even today. There's so many uh, worldly churches out there. Not, not all of them. There's some that teach the truth. But more and more, it seems, there are more worldly churches out there that are doing it just because it's almost like a show. Or it's almost like the right thing to do. Or it's almost like just going to cover your bases just in case there is a God. That person's heart, if that's them, is not with the Lord, obviously. People go for all the wrong reasons. And just think about this. The number of reasons could be so many considering the depravity of the flesh. If we, if we interviewed a thousand church members in this state, let's just say we were able to get them all together. They came from all different churches. And we had one-on-one private interviews, even anonymous. And we said, why are you going to church? How many twisted motivations do you think you'd hear? I don't think it would be three or four. I think people would, have, people would have all kinds of motivations, all kinds of things that you would even grimace at because of the total depravity of the flesh and the selfish motivations that are tied into overtly godly acts for selfish reasons. So just something to think about, but people go for all the wrong reasons. But then what we've been talking about lately is uh, there's the possibility of the believer allowing his flesh to dominate him. It happens to us all at times. It's possible, especially when convicting messages come up, that the flesh talks us into staying home or not listening. Or the flesh talks us into being in denial of what the Spirit is saying as applying to us directly. The flesh often wants to stick with what it knows choosing to stay in bondage to self rather than to be set free by the truth. And that doesn't make sense, but why? It's it's a comfort thing. And we've all been there if we're honest. We've all engaged in denial after hearing a certain message, thinking of others that need it, but that's not a problem in my life, in my heart. We've all even directly disobeyed the Spirit's direction at times, unwilling to obey to keep our flesh happy. So let's not judge one another. We've all been there, done that, given in to the flesh, given in to that persuasion, that whispering in the ear. We've all done it. But the Spirit of the Lord has brought this topic up, this topic of stragglers. He's brought this up for a reason this past week. The Lord is trying to wake us up from any malaise we might be caught in and self-deceit so we can be set free by His grace and truth. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to shake us. You know, He's shaking the tree, so to speak. Are we asleep? Are we um, too familiar? There's a lot of different things we are trapped in, some type of self-deceit. God is so encouraging us to receive all of his grace provisions. That's been the message the last week or so, right? Receive all the grace he's put put on your table, in your plates, and do it from a willing heart. Don't do it out of obligation, which it's easy to do, right? When you know the right thing to do, and you don't feel like it, you do it anyway. But God wants the heart. God looks at the heart. He doesn't want us to fall into the trap of the Corinthians. Even though we've all failed in the past, just like we've all been lazy from time to time, that doesn't have to be a negative pattern in our lives. See, shake it. Sometimes we need to shake it off. Don't give in to that like, oh, gee, I'll never be better kind of, Silly attitude, almost a self-pity attitude. Oh, I'll never, I'll never shake this, or I'll never get out of this, these doldrums or this uh, negative attitude or this doubting. 
That's not an attitude of faith. You can change your perspective at any moment. God can give you faith, if you're willing, if you're humble, to, to get out of a way you've always thought. We don't have to stay in this negative pattern in our lives that the flesh sometimes gets us to think we're trapped in, and we're not. It's often just one prayer, one change of perspective. In humility, God wants us to submit to his truth, and that includes all of it. So turn in your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. God wants us to submit to all of his truth, not parts of it that we like, that we select. He doesn't want us to brush off parts of it that are uncomfortable or we're in denial of. He's like, if you're really humble, you'll want all my truth. You'll eat it all. You'll take even the medicine that doesn't taste good, but you know is good for you. You'll take it. You'll swallow it if you're humble. But the Corinthians were, were fleshly. They, they get stuck in the flesh. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not, are you not walking like mere men? So the question has come up for us. Why is it that whenever convicting messages come from the pulpit, certain people are absent from their seats? And it might be you, if you're willing to examine yourself. I don't know. It's between each one of us and the Lord to honestly look in the mirror. But the question is why? That's what God has us examining. Why do we do it? What's our motivation? Uh, what's our thinking when we fall into that trap? Why do we allow our flesh to overrule our spirit when we know what's right? Right? That's the battle in Galatians 5. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Why do we allow, and the key word is allow, right? You know the whole phrase, uh, just get out of the way? We're the ones that allow our flesh to stay in the way. And listen to it. We even give it a, a hearing. And we listen to those whispers. Why do we allow our flesh to overrule our spirit when we know what's right? For example, we know this is where we should be. What else is quote-unquote important. We're going to get to that in a minute. What else is so important that you can't be here every time the doors are open? I mean, you know what a legitimate excuse is versus a illegitimate one, right? If you can't walk, it's a pretty good reason you can't be here. But what else is as important as being face-to-face -face and listening to God's Word? We visited a passage that's a good example of someone who might have a good heart overall, but is giving in to fleshly concerns and appearances. And that might be you. You might be a believer. You might overall have a good heart, but you might be giving in to fleshly concerns and appearances. And it, giving in to that lie. A turn to Luke 10.38 once again. Luke 10.38. We don't know Martha's intentions, but we know she was wrong in her priorities as the Lord pointed out to her. Luke 10, 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him, welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, 
You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I love that the Lord used this word, necessary, in verse 42. Only one thing is necessary. He declares only one thing can truly be called necessary or important. It reminds me of how we throw around the word important in our society, in our daily lives, like in a careless way. We call a lot of things important that really aren't compared to truly important things. It's like in America how we call wants needs, right? What a big mistake we found out from the pulpit a few years ago and accurately calling something what it is. It's the same with what we call important or necessary. How many things in life are truly necessary? Here the Lord says only one thing is truly necessary. On the board, all things pale in comparison to sitting at his feet and taking in his word. All things pale in comparison. For example, are you sick? That's a priority in your life if you are dealing with the sickness right now or an illness, right? It's a priority for sure. But sitting at his feet and taking in his word can heal you, right? Physically and even more important, spiritually. How about this? Are you broke? Jesus said, don't worry about food or clothing. And man shall not live by bread alone. He'll even give you bread to eat that you don't know of. How is that? By doing the one necessary thing that can sustain you through any life situation. I use that word sustain on purpose. Like food. Like energy. You could be broke. If you humbly sit at his feet and take in his word, like the food it's meant to be for your heart and your soul, then that stuff goes away. Are you broke? What is broke? There's another question. Broken America is not really broke. On the board, John 4, 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, that's what fueled the Lord. That's what gave him strength. That's what sustained him. And this transcends any of life's problems, including hunger. This transcends, rises above, and sustains you regardless of life's problems, even things that we think are serious or important, like hunger. Look what Jesus said. Look what he said on the board. I have food to eat that you don't know of. In other words, I don't need food right now. You might think I do. I haven't eaten maybe in quite a while. I don't need it. Obeying the word sustains me. And it does give us energy that we don't realize. So again, this transcends any of life's problems if we take the perspective the Lord is giving us here. For another example, are you lonely or depressed? Only one thing is necessary or truly important. Because the word is the source of life and happiness and contentment. If you fall in love with Christ, and you know this is his word and he is the word, and you sit at his feet, you're going to be fed, you're going to be nourished, including in your soul from loneliness or depression. You're not going to care about those things anymore. When we get trapped in those things, things that we focus on, we're like 
giving into the flesh, telling you you need these things. It's like a cat coming up to you and keep hitting you like this, a little paw, you know. Don't remind me that I'm broke, that I'm lonely, that I'm hungry. Flesh, go away. I'm going to go sit at the Lord's feet and let him sustain me. Now, those things are important on the surface, aren't they? We rightly use the word important, at least in our society. But truly important? Maybe not. If we're humble, if we're willing to accept his perspective. Whenever we approach the Lord and his word with a humble heart, he will be gracious towards us. That's been a repetitive point the last few lessons. He will be gracious towards us. That's what he does. That's who he is. He's waiting to be gracious to us. What is he waiting for? Humility. A humble attitude of the heart that sits at his feet like Mary did, soaking in his word. Just taking it in. Realizing this is the truly necessary thing in life. That's what he's waiting for. Then he'll give you everything else, right? Matthew 6. If you seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. You don't even think about them anymore, and they add it to you. Gives you food, gives you money, gives you a friend, whatever. They're added to you. Because you have your eyes on, on the Lord, and you're, you're allowing yourself to fall in love with him instead of the things we think we need to be loved. The attitude of the heart that sits at the feet, at his feet, like Mary did, Soaking in his every word. That's what the Lord's waiting for. And that's what the Lord can bless. And again, why do we have bad expectations on the board? Why do we expect to have peace apart from hanging on the words of the giver of peace? Now look at, look at the attitude of the heart here. We're not talking about having peace from listening to God's word. We're talking about having peace from hanging on God's word. Do you hang on his every word, so to speak? That's an attitude of the heart, isn't it? That's a perspective or a viewpoint of how you view God's word. Not that it is important. How you look at it. How you treasure it. What's your attitude towards it? And that's what you see when you think of sitting at someone's feet. That's not just, you know, sitting in the next room, clipping your toenails and listening to the message. All right? That's not what that is. Doing five things at once while the message is going on in the background. That's not sitting at the Lord's feet. In fact, that's a distracted heart. Sitting at someone's feet, you're like, I, need, I can't miss a thing here. I need this. I need you, Lord. Help me fall in love with you more. Help me fall in love with your thinking more. So the question came up on Sunday, what has distracted you from a life dedicated to the Lord? Maybe, you know, you might be saying it's not, that's not me or I, I, I have examined myself and I don't think I am distracted. God bless you. But be honest with yourself at least. Are you, have you been distracted from a life dedicated to the Lord as your number one priority, as your first love? The word can protect you if you sit at his feet. Psalm 119.9 in the Amplified. How can a young man keep his way pure? One way is necessary. By keeping watch on himself according to your word, conforming his life to your precepts. That's the way to keep pure. There's no doubt our battle with the flesh is ongoing. That's why we have to stay vigilant and alert for its schemes. And that's even more why we need to submit to his word on a daily basis to guide us and protect us from deception. On the board, again, we noted the battle going on within us, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But notice the promise in verse 16. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Humbling ourselves at His feet with that attitude will, you know, push aside the flesh for us. You won't carry out the desire of the flesh if you walk by the Spirit. By the leading of the Spirit, Pastor graciously pulled out the rod for us in the last couple lessons. And we obviously needed to hear it, and hopefully we hum- we ha- were humbled uh, and we humbly received it. We also were reminded that as a pastor, he speaks with the delegated authority of God. The delegated authority of God. You know, he's told us before even, he's not here for himself. This isn't like a fun job. This isn't a well-paying job. You know what I mean? He's here for us because God called him. And he's a delegated authority of God. So what does that mean? When you disobey a legitimate delegated authority of God, you disobey God. Something to really think about as we get arrogant in our souls, when we hear things we don't like, or we make it personal. And the Spirit reminded us also, it's our job to willingly submit to God's authority. Willingly. God looks at the heart. On the board, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 through 8 in the New Living Translation. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. When you reject on the board, when you reject the delegated authority, you reject the authority. Do you remember how the Jews rejected Moses in the desert? A lot of them did. Rejected Moses in the desert. Guess what? They were rejecting God, God's word. He was the mouthpiece for God's word. May that not be us, right? Getting arrogant, selfish, uh, I don't know, rebellious, wanting our own way like the Jews did in the desert. As Pastor shared with us from his shepherd's heart on the board, where blessings come from. He said, we know for a fact from Holy Scripture that if you obey and submit to me as your shepherd, God will bless you. Is that a doubt in anyone's mind? If not, you just need to read your Bible more, honestly, in context. If you submit to an authority that's from God, you're going to be blessed. Even when there are mistakes made, you're going to be blessed because you honor the authority of God. So on the board, it's time to evaluate your priorities right now. What are priorities? Priorities, what are they? Think about it. What is your number one, number two, number three, number four, number five? If you took out a piece of paper right now and you prioritize what's really important in your heart, not not saying the right thing, in your heart, what's going on? What, What are you esteeming? more than the Lord? What are you occupied with too much more than the Lord? That's your priorities. It starts in the heart, and then it turns out in the life. So we know right from wrong because God's Spirit is working within us. We know when we have given certain things a higher priority in our hearts than Jesus himself. To examine our priorities, we must ask ourselves, where do our affections lie? Where do our affections lie? This isn't just a, um, an intellectual exercise. This involves our, heart, our, our emotions. Emotions are part of the heart, too. In other words, is Jesus your first love or your second love or your third love? or even lower on the totem pole? In your heart, where do your affections lie? What are we esteeming or loving in our soul more than Him? 
And it's a humbling question, if you're honest. And to the degree that we love other things more than him, or we, we, we have affections towards certain things in the world even, or even certain people in our lives, more than him, we're out of line. And we will suffer loss even if we're doing good. Go again to Revelation chapter 2. We will suffer loss even if we're doing good. We see that in Revelation 2, and we're going to see it coming up in another chapter. Notice we already saw this on, uh, I think it was Sunday, the good deeds of this church and then, then the Lord's conclusion to them. Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. On the board, this also came out on Sunday, the kingdom of darkness, with a lot of help from your flesh, has supplanted Jesus as your first love, especially if you're one of the stragglers, and you know it. The kingdom of darkness, with a lot of help from your flesh, has supplanted Jesus as your first love. For some of you, it's a member of the opposite sex. It's even the idea of it. We often fall in love with the idea of something, even if there's not a person in our lives right now, for example. For other, others of you, it's your job or your kids, or it's money and possessions, or even the idea of it. And then for others, it's whatever idol has formed in your heart a person or an image that you've wrongly made into a hero in your soul. But in all these cases, in all these examples, and we all have different weaknesses, in all these cases, it's not Jesus that's at the top in our heart. And that's the fatal error. When Jesus is no longer the first love in our hearts, we have fallen into false priorities placing false gods on pedestals in our hearts. I mean, I can think of a couple things that have been challenging that position in my heart. Let's just put it that way. Things that um, I think I'm giving too much credence to in my soul, too much credibility, too much admiration, let's call it, affection. And, uh, you know, these last couple of messages make, make you examine these things. And that's obviously a good thing. When Jesus is no longer the first love in our hearts, we've fallen into false priorities, placing false gods on pedestals in our hearts. We can even do the right motions, go through the right actions, and still have a false god on a pedestal in our hearts. All we have to do is ask ourselves, what am I esteeming more than Christ right now? What am I giving more attention or affection to? Or who? On the board, remember our Lord said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As in Matthew 6.21 and Luke 12.34. So we must be careful to maintain the Lord and His kingdom as where our treasure lies. That's where our treasure lies, in Him, so that our hearts rightly cling to our Lord and Savior and give Him the right place in our souls. Again, remember our Lord said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We must be careful to maintain 
the Lord and His kingdom as where our treasure lies, so that our hearts rightly cling to our Lord and Savior. On Sunday, we were warned against the following. Counterfeit love. This is the great robber of, of robbers. Love is the most attractive, motivational emotion of all. The kingdom of darkness knows that if it seduces you from God's sphere of love, it can control every aspect of you. Do you want the kingdom of darkness to control every aspect of you? Of course not. But that's what you allow. You allow him into your soul when you elevate something else in your soul on a pedestal above Christ. However, if we stay in the sphere of his love, so many of our problems simply fade away. It's like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. She probably totally forgot about Martha and the chores or the whatever had to be done. She was in awe of the Savior. So those things faded away. Maybe, maybe they, you know, our sisters can be, right? Maybe they always nagged one another or, or whatever. It wasn't even a problem in her soul while the Lord was there and she was listening to his word. That's what happens to our problems and things that make us stumble. That's what happens to them when we approach the Lord or when we stay in the sphere of his love. And that's the attitude of our heart at his feet. The fears we have, the doubting we have, we, we like, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I'll go to God and say, Lord, how do I beat this? How do I get rid of these fears or these doubts or my arrogance or my difficulty in obeying? The answer is not on focusing on those things. It's in falling down at the feet of the Lord in humility and listening to his word that way. Because then those things are just going to fade away. They're not going to have any power over you anymore. Because the power is in his love. If you haven't figured that out yet in the last however many lessons, the power for us to overcome in this life is in his love. And we have to choose to stay in the sphere of that love. We can't play around. We can't leave it. We can't think we don't need it. It's the only source of happiness, the only source of peace, the only source of overcoming, having the power to overcome the details of life, the flesh, the temptations of the kingdom of darkness. All the things that bother us, the fears, the doubts, the worries, the, the uh, disobedience even, they will just dissipate when we stay in the sphere of his love. It's only when we leave this heavenly sphere that we entertain earthly things and give them a place, including the temptations of the flesh and the world. So what we've been hearing from the Spirit over and over regarding his love, don't let it leave your side. Regardless of the type of situation you're in or the type of persecution you're under, don't let his love leave your side. You're like dropping your best weapon. I mean, if you want, picture it like a gun in your holster. Make sure you always have it in your holster. Wherever you go, don't ever just leave it behind. And don't rely on your own power to get you through something. Stay in the sphere of his love. What greater weapon is there than God's love? If we're going to use this analogy, what disarms people more than God's love? All kinds of people, all walks of life. If you show them God's love, they don't know what to do with it. Their hatred turns into confusion or wonder at what you are. Because you will be look, look like an alien to them because this love is foreign in this world. But this is the key to um, living life in his power and not being sidetracked, not being a straggler, etc. Stay in the sphere of his love. Here's another analogy. If you want, picture God's love like an aura that surrounds you or maybe even a pleasant aroma that you carry around with you and must always be with you. Greg smiling. A pleasant aroma, Greg. Carry that aroma around with you 
as if you are able to give off a scent that gives people peace, makes them wonder why you what's going on here, what, why are you different? You go in with it, God's love out in front of you, and you leave with it, covering your back. What's, what's the one thing you want when you deal with people? What's the one thing we should want when we deal with people? We should want them to leave saying, I don't understand that love they just showed me or that tolerance they had for me or that patience they had with me, which are all signs of love, right? I don't understand what just happened, really. We, it was even a confrontational discussion. We were, we were in disagreement totally about the subject. But they loved me. I don't get it. They loved me coming and going. And that's what we want to stick with people, right? What do we want people to see in us? Christ. What is Christ? Love incarnate. The one thing we want to leave people with, regardless of how a conversation or a situation goes, is love. Love your enemies. Right? Amen? And so if that's the goal, don't leave the sphere of it. Don't let yourself leave the sphere of it. If you're out of it, bow your head and repent and, and ask God to be in it again. It's supernatural, okay? It's not like we got this thing figured out every day of our lives. Obviously, we don't. Ask him for more help. Stay in the sphere of his love. Remember what he did for you, Jesus. Stay in that sphere of love. And you can overcome anything in this world. That's been the message. We want people to always know we love them, even in the face of disagreements, believers and unbelievers. On the board, stay in the sphere of his love. Always, otherwise, even our good efforts are self-defeating. We saw this in Revelation 2 already, and we see it again in 1 Corinthians 13. So turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to read this whole chapter here. Again, the point on the board, stay in the sphere of love always. Otherwise, even our good efforts are self-defeating. As we read this, be aware that at least three different references have been made to something in this chapter in the last few weeks. At least three different references have been made to something in this chapter in the last three weeks or so. So see if you see them as we read. 1 Corinthians 13.1 if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. The Spirit wants me to share something here with you real quick. Um, Regarding verse 1, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, right? You could have all the Bible doctrine in your soul that you want to have. But if you're witnessing to somebody and you don't have love, they don't actually hear it. It sounds like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I firsthand have experienced this with certain people, you know, that I witnessed to. And um, if they, let's say they attack Jesus, or let's say they um, are saying a lot of untrue things, either about him or about whatever, God in general, right? Maybe they're atheists, I don't know. I've actually at times lashed back at them. I've actually reacted, gotten defensive, and a little too excited. But in a, in a way where I lost the love that must be maintained, in other words, if the love, if you don't keep the love in those situations, you might as well not even do it. Because these words you keep talking about, quoting scripture or whatever you're doing, sounds like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal to them. Because it's outside of love. But if you're in the sphere of love, they'll hear every word. They may not agree, but they'll hear it. They'll receive it. So anyway, 
Um, look at verse 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Folks, look what these people did. They sold all their possessions and gave it to the poor. And they died for Christ. Let's say they were, their body was burned, right? They, they got persecuted for the name of Christ. But you do not have love, it profits you nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. But you know what never goes away is the point of this? Love. Because it's eternal. Love never fails. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This chapter reminds me of what we read in Revelation 2 about losing our first love. The church in Ephesus did a lot of divinely good things, or so it appeared. But without love, there's a void or an insufficiency. On the board, if love is absent from a good act, is it godly? If love is absent from a good act, is it godly? You decide. God is love, right? Think about it. We can do a godly thing and have it not be godly. People do it all the time. What differentiates the godly act from the ungodly act? One thing, if it's done in love or not. We just blatantly read that in 1 Corinthians 13 and in Revelation 2. And it goes back to Jesus being our first love. If he's not your first love, we can do nothing good. Why? Because we're void of love. We're void of love. When we leave that sphere of love, and we don't do everything in love and carry it with us and let it go before us and cover our back on the way out, when we do that thing, we can't do anything good, truly good. On the board, John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's like a, a kind of a slap in the face to us that we all need. Apart from him, you can do nothing. And who is him? Who is he? He is God who is love incarnate. If you're not abiding in him who is love, you can do nothing. As the Spirit gave us on Sunday, we have one singular choice that affects all others. Just like the Lord told Martha, there's only one thing necessary. It comes down to love or not. When Mary was at Jesus' feet listening to his word, she was loving God. In that, within that very moment of her life, she was loving God. 
humbly and actively. We can choose to do the same. Or we can be occupied with the details of life like Martha was, being deceived by things that aren't truly necessary. As came up on Sunday on the board, which do you love more? Jesus' feet or the world's feet? We know the right answer, but which one do you actively hang on to each day? Which one does your heart hang on to to get you through the day, to give you happiness or peace within the day? I mean, if we're honest, we look to different things to give us a little break. We look to different things in life around us to give us happiness. And we're supplanting Jesus in that moment when we do it. We'll never be perfect, but that's what we're doing. We're saying, I need this. Just some of this right now. Maybe it's alcohol for some people. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's money. Uh, Maybe it's preoccupying oneself with an idol in the world. And to the degree we do that, we supplant Jesus. Because we're saying, I need that to make me happy. I'm not content right now. You see? It's very subtle. So don't condemn yourself. Just be honest. Which one do you actively hang on to each day? His feet or the world's feet? That's like a measuring stick for us. And if we need to repent of putting Jesus aside, then let's just do it. And that's why our lifestyle is one of repentance. Right? Whenever we know we're out of line, repent from the heart. Come back to him. Turn around. Be like, that's foolish. Right back to him. Put your eyes on the cross if you have to. Think about how much he loves you. Submit to him. That's what we need to do as the way, the truth, and the life. And forsake the garbage lies that we fall for. On the board, to love, we have this one singular choice that affects all other choices. It really does. I mean, don't just skim over this. Whether you choose to love or not to love in any given situation in life, it affects, it affects all your other choices in life and the results. Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This is really something for us all to think about how deeply our decisions to love or not to love affect the rest of our lives. Even our own happiness, even our effectiveness in evangelism, our decision to love or not to love affects the rest of our lives. So if it's that obvious, if it's that simple, why not just stay in his love? And when you struggle and you're getting out of it, why not run back to him, like quick? Whatever you got to do, get on your knees, fall at his feet, Open the word. Stay in that sphere of love. Do whatever it takes to stay in that sphere of love. Then we saw how God is good and God is love. And we rightly also concluded that God is righteous. So it must be righteous to love. This came up on Sunday. So I love the title here. It was called Life Made Easy. When we abide in righteousness, we receive peace. To love is righteous, therefore a loving person is a peace. It's not a mystery. It's not hard. It's not confusing. To the contrary, for people who don't love like Christ, the only option left is fear. As in 1 John 4, 18. Unloving people fear everything. As also came out from the Spirit, if you can't manage to be in love with Jesus Christ, who is honestly your best friend, proven by his actions. If you can't manage to be in love with him, how are you going to love others? What power are you going to have to love others? Because it takes power, doesn't it? Especially to love the unlovely. Especially to love our enemies or those who go against us in different ways. What power are you going to use to love others? How are you going to be an overcomer in your experience in life? You're not without 
hanging on to his love at all times. So on the board, regarding life made easy, we must be tapped into the wellspring of love. That is Jesus himself. Only then will our hearts be watered and we'll be able to share that water with other people because we're swimming in the sphere of his love for us. As we close, um, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Let's close this way. How do we always remember Christ's love for us? How do we always appreciate his love for us? Is it not by remembering where we came from? So we're kind of bringing this full circle. Uh, We're not going to read the whole passage right now, but this is the passage about Jesus at the Pharisee's home and the sinner comes to him. And let's pick it up in verse 43, Luke 7, 43, or actually verse 40. Luke 7, 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The point is that being forgiven much, or realizing that you've been forgiven much, regardless of who you are, regardless of your areas of weakness and your sins in the past, we've all been forgiven much, which this Pharisee didn't admit. Being forgiven much, And remembering that, that's what motivates your love for Jesus Christ. It's funny, God's been bringing a lot of my past sins into my mind lately. Even as a a youth, he's been bringing all these things into my mind lately. And I think it's to help see how low I am and how grand his forgiveness is. It's all I can really conclude because at times it's very, like, almost discouraging. And like, you know makes you sick even, but it's good because you realize how much more you've been forgiven. And only then can you reside in that sphere of love all the time. That's what enables our love to be freely shared with others, even those who have hurt us, appreciating how much we've been forgiven. And I want you to look at how this rolls into the next chapter. Look at Luke 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. What do you see here? In verse 2, the women that were following him had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. They were forgiven much. Their sins were forgiven. Their horrible lives were in the past, put there by Christ. And what happens? They loved so much, they followed him and even supported them financially. He who is forgiven much loves much. This should remind us all of the total depravity we all came from, and all the sins he healed us from personally. That he's totally forgiven. So again, as we close on the board, 
life made easy. We must be tapped into the wellspring of love that is Jesus himself. Only then will our hearts be watered and we'll be able to share that water with other people because we're swimming in the sphere of his love for us. It's really so simple. We must never like lose sight of this target. This is where we get power to do all things from. And love never fails. Amen? Let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your grace towards us. We thank you for your spirit's guidance uh, and being real with us and helping us examine ourselves without condemnation, but in true humility. And Father, we ask that you help us to uh, have more faith, more hope, and more love. Help us be humble before your feet to receive it because you are gracious to the humble. Father, we ask that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name by the power of your spirit. Amen.